0: All right, here we are, Mark for Beginners. Uh, This is lesson number three. So you can open your Bibles uh, to uh, Mark chapter two. We'll be covering material starting in Mark chapter two. I'll also be throwing the uh, scripture references uh, up on the uh, the screen. The title of this particular uh, lesson is Encounters and Parables. So so far we've uh, we've seen Mark do several things in the very um, uh, the very short space of one chapter. He has, uh, first of all, he stated his major objective right off the bat you know, in verse one, that he's going to show Jesus as the divine Son of God. Don't waste any time. Puts that out there right at the beginning. He also establishes the historical and cultural background of Jesus. Uh, he was a Jew living at the time of John the Baptist. He was the one who fulfilled the prophecies of the Jewish scriptures concerning the coming Messiah. And again, he doesn't take any time in demonstrating Old Testament scriptures and so on and so forth, because his audience is not primarily uh, Jews, unlike Matthew, who, uh, as I mentioned before, Matthew was very careful in, in laying the groundwork of Old Testament prophecy to demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies. Mark simply states it. Um, as a fact and and moves on. Uh, Also he demonstrates Jesus' power in proving His claims to be the Son of God. and, And His power, of course, is seen in His amazing teaching with confidence and, of course, the more amazing miracles that He performs. So in the next chapter, as we begin chapter two, Mark is going to continue reciting the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. But now He's going to describe the reactions of those people who confronted or opposed Him for various reasons. Now some of these, uh, maybe this, uh, some of these actually were the same people who later on were calling uh, for, his, uh, for His crucifixion. For now, however, Mark describes their first reaction to the ministry and the claims of uh, Jesus. And he demonstrates this by Uh, recounting seven different encounters, seven different confrontations, encounters that he has with different individuals. This goes from chapter 2, 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 35. Uh, So these uh, uh, confrontations with different groups are recorded in a series, as I say, of seven encounters described in the next couple of chapters. And I'm just, uh, I'm not going to read these, it's too long, we don't have time in this class, but I'll describe some pretty familiar things that, you know, if we've, if we've read uh, Mark uh, several times, uh, we're familiar with the story. So we'll just look at it from the encounter perspective and what was taking place. So the first of these is uh, uh, the encounter Uh, with the scribes in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 all the way to 12. Now the scribes, who were Jewish lawyers, um, accused Jesus of blasphemy because He um, uh, said that He could forgive sin. And of course He could forgive sin. I mean, after all, He was God. Uh, And we know the scene. There's a paralytic there. Jesus uh, tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And the, the scribes are sitting around saying, well, who can forgive sins but God? And so they accuse Him of Blasphemy. So Jesus, to demonstrate that He had the power or the authority to do one thing, which was to forgive sin, goes ahead and heals the paralytic to demonstrate the idea that if I have the power to heal this man, then I also have the power to forgive his sin. And the idea is that Jesus, well, He can't blaspheme. He is God. Second encounter is with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were scribes, but they belonged to a particular party, a particular point of view, extremely conservative, Uh, and they accused Him of an immoral lifestyle because He ate and He was seen with publicans and with sinners. And of course Jesus explains to them that His mission was to heal the spiritually sick, and for this work He needed to be uh, among them. And the point was that he wasn't participating in their immorality, he was sharing the gospel while being uh, among them. Third encounter takes place in chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, this time with John's uh, disciples. And so the disciples of John and the Pharisees wondered about his lack of spirituality because he did not encourage his own disciples to fast. the the Pharisees and even the disciples of John uh, were encouraged to fast on a regular basis. And of course Jesus responds, uh, teaches them that spiritual people know when to fast and when to feast. And the point He makes is that uh, He is among them, the Lord, the Messiah, He's among them. And this is a cause for feasting, not fasting. Uh, And so uh, he, he, He intimates the idea that Uh, because His uh, disciples are actually feasting, they're eating, they're drinking while they're with Him, this demonstrates not a lack of spirituality, but it demonstrates um, um, a spiritual discernment, because they knew when to feast and when to fast. So uh, His answer is, no, my my disciples are actually very spiritual, because they they can discern the times, when to feast, when to fast. Um, the, uh, in this passage uh, we have uh, where Jesus talks about you, know, you can't put, uh, put a new patch on an old cloth or you can't put new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wineskin will burst or the cloth will rip. That, this is where this appears. And of course he's really talking about a comparison between Judaism, Judaism and Christianity, which has not flowered yet, you know, but will, will come about as Uh, He goes through his ministry, his uh, death, uh, burial, and resurrection. The apostles begin preaching the gospel. Christianity begins to uh, to, to, um, take on momentum, actually surpassing uh, Judaism. But he's making an allusion to this change uh, when he's talking about the the, the new patch on the old cloth. And the idea is you, you can't repair Judaism, the old cloth, by patching on Christianity to it you have to remove the old and take all of new cloth. And he makes the same point using different imagery, this time using a wineskin, an old wineskin. The Jews kept wines uh, for traveling purposes in in wineskins made from uh, animal skins. So his point is you can't preserve Christianity, the new wine, by putting it within the confines of Judaism, the old wineskin, because Christianity will grow out of these confines and a rupture will occur. And a rupture did occur, didn't it? Right. Um, Christianity needed to be independent from Judaism because it was a growing thing and Judaism was not a growing thing. Judaism had reached its peak, had reached its uh, level of um, fulfillment. The whole purpose for Judaism was to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. Well, the Messiah was here. Had they accepted the Messiah, then they would be the vehicle to bring the Messiah to the entire world. That that was the point. But they aborted that. They they destroyed that idea by rejecting their own Messiah. So there was no purpose left for um, Judaism other than being an example uh, and it has been an example for, you know, uh, since that time. Um, another um, another um, uh, encounter, uh, this time the Pharisees again. Um, the Pharisees uh, in chapter 2, 23 to 28, they accuse not Jesus, but this time they accused Jesus' disciples of disobeying the law by picking grain on the Sabbath. I don't mean harvesting, I mean you're walking through and you're It's like you're walking through an orchard and you pick an apple and you're just going on through. Um, And the Pharisees uh, uh, said, well, they're breaking the law. You can't can't work on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees had created all kinds of definitions as to what work was. Uh, Even picking corn or grain in that way uh, was defined as work and forbidden. So Jesus uses the example of David. You know, David, David and Goliath, that David, the psalmist. An episode where David and his men are hungry and they come to a place and they see the priest, visit with the priest, and the priest, there's the showbread. Showbread was bread that was made every day as part of the daily ritual. And the leftover showbread was eaten by the priest. Only the priests were allowed to eat. But this time, David comes with his men. They're hungry. There's no other food. And so they eat that particular uh, bread. And so in this story, Jesus suggests with this episode that David uh, did this, but he didn't sin. And the principle is that human need outweighs ceremonial law. Jesus explains in this passage that the Sabbath was created because man needed rest and he needed spiritual renewal and not the other way around. Man was not created to be a slave of religious ceremony. God didn't create religious ceremony and then created man and said, Alright, now I'm watching how you obey all the rules of you know that, that's not why He created that. Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath, in that as Son of God, He instituted the Sabbath. He was with God at the creation, right? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, right? Okay. So now as the Messiah, He was to fulfill all the requirements of the Sabbath, but not the requirements that were added by men, all these little laws about what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath. So He's Lord of the Sabbath because He initiated it at the beginning and now He's about to fulfill it at the end. So Jesus cannot break the Sabbath. He instituted the Sabbath. He understands what the Sabbath is and what it is is for. And actually it's about Him, right? It's about Him. Uh, Fifth encounter, Uh, the Pharisees again. This time uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus, not His disciples, but they accuse Him of breaking the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath day. So you see, in the previous encounter, they, they accuse His disciples of breaking the Sabbath you know, because they worked. Now they accuse Him of breaking the Sabbath because He heals someone on that day. And Jesus responds by again reinforcing the principle is it ever wrong to do good? You know, the, the true law concerning the Sabbath had no regulation about healing on the Sabbath. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes had initiated themselves. They had invented this. And notice how He heals the man uh, in this particular episode. Just a, a single word and the man is healed. So Jesus shows that it is always good to do good even on the Sabbath. So you notice in, um, in the following verses, in verses seven to 12, uh, Jesus does a series of miracles. Um, and uh, the, you know, he, just the presence of Jesus, the, the demons uh, would flee. He didn't have to go through a big, long rigmarole and so on and so forth. Just His very presence you know, scattered them. And of course, uh, in verses 13 to 19, uh, in this passage here, Mark talks about the selection of Jesus' 12 closest disciples to become the apostles. Then the sixth encounter, uh, the scribes. Um, The family of Jesus begins to believe that he's not well, he's crazy actually, Uh, and part of this is the accusation by the scribes of being possessed by a demon, by Beelzebub, a name for the devil. Also they accuse him of doing the work of the devil in cooperation and with under the power of Satan himself. So basically the scribes are saying, look, he, this guy's possessed and yes, he is doing, they can't deny the, the great things that he's doing, but the things that he's doing, he's doing them under the power of Satan because he's possessed, right? So Jesus, of course, shows how illogical their thinking is. If Satan is destroying demons, he's then you know, destroying himself. Demons were being destroyed, but Jesus shows that it wasn't Satan that was doing it. Jesus was not doing Satan's work. He was actually destroying Satan's work. Now it's in this passage also that Mark talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in context, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute to the devil the work of God through the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're watching the Spirit of God at work and you're saying, oh, that's the devil. That's the devil's work. And so someone says, why is that unforgivable? Is it that we get God so angry? He said, Boy, I'm so angry, I'll never, you know, I will never forgive you. Is it that thing that's happening? Is God like that? Uh, I don't believe so. Um, I think it's unpardonable because it's the Spirit of God that works repentance in one's heart. It's the Spirit of God that brings a person the Word of God, right? That brings you face to face with the gospel. So to to designate the spirit of God as being a devil is to put ourselves beyond repentance. I mean, think of it for a second. If you're thinking the the Holy Spirit's work, which is to bring the gospel to people and the the gospel itself, if you're thinking that that is the work of the devil, as the scribes were, were saying, well, there's nowhere for you to go to be forgiven. If you've rejected that and if you've, if, if, you've said, uh, if you've relegated all of that to Satan, where do you go for forgiveness? There's nowhere to go for forgiveness. So it's unpardonable because you have simply <laughs> destroyed the bridge uh, that takes you to safety. Okay? Uh, If there were four or five different ways to be saved by four or five different deities and so on and so forth, well, if you you don't get one, you you get another. But as uh, Peter talks, uh, but as Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So if we, as I say, relegate the saving work of Christ, the, the preaching of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, if we relegate that to Satan, well, there's no other place that we can go to, to be saved, so it's unpardonable in that way. And then another encounter, uh, number seven, um, his own family. Uh, the scribes are saying, "This guy, you know, he's crazy. There's something wrong with him." So the family, uh, they come and they want to take custody of him because they believe him to be mad. You know, they want him to rest. I don't think it was a, uh, I don't think it was a like a bad thing or anything. It's just, you know, a boy our son's in trouble, our brother's in, uh, in trouble, people are accusing him of being crazy, so on and so forth. You know, we need to go get him and bring him home and you, know, you need to calm down a little bit, get some rest, you, know, you can always go back later, you know, that type of thing. So here Jesus talks about ties, you know, ties that bind you. He says His earthly family believes that its blood ties give give them the right to kind of advance on him and tell him what is right and tell him what to do. Jesus doesn't defend his sanity. He doesn't say, hey, no, no, I'm not really crazy and uh, listen, what I'm teaching is true. He He doesn't even make any defense of that. He explains who his real family is. Those who do the will of God, those are the ones who are related to him and related to each other in the way that it counts, because those people are related to each other eternally. Okay? Let's read um, a passage of scripture here from First John, chapter 3, verse 21 to 24. Uh, John writes, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given to us. So you know, who, who keeps the commandment? You know, Jesus says, you know, who, who's my family? The ones that obey God the commandments of God. Who And who are those people? What are those commandments? Well, John says uh, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one commandment. And that we love one another. That's the other commandment. So who is Jesus' family? The ones who believe who He is, who He claims to be, and the ones who demonstrate that faith by doing what He asks them to do, which is to love one another. All right, so let's just summarize this section here before we move on. Um, We have confrontations that Mark describes um, with religious traditions, leaders, family. So he's accused of blasphemy, disrespect for God. Uh, But that can't be because he is God. He's accused of immoral uh, and unfriendly behavior. But but he loved sinners. That's why he was among them. He loved their souls. He's accused of being uh, unspiritual. He didn't keep the feasts or the law, not the feasts, but the the particular laws that the Pharisees had developed. Uh, And he's saying, well, but uh, my disciples know how to discern when to fast, when not to fast, so on and so forth. He is accused of disobeying the laws of, well, of that time, the church or the temple or the the Jews. And his answer is, well, I obey God's law, not men's laws. And he's accused of this uh, several times. He's also accused of being crazy because of his religion. And his answer is, well, if loving God with my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole strength, if that's being crazy, well then so be it. I'm I'm crazy. I'm crazy because I, 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 uh, I am committed to obeying God. And the same accusations made towards Christians. You people are crazy. Religious zealots. Well, if religious zealot means I love the Lord, I want to do what He, you know, I want to do what He wants me to do, and if that puts me in conflict with the world, then so be it. And then of course, uh, he's told he's not loyal to his family because of his work in the gospel. Uh, and his answer, of course, is uh, you know, those who seek the kingdom first, those who seek to know God, to please God, they're the ones that belong uh, to the family of God. So as I say, is that, is that kind of familiar? Doesn't the, the, the Christian in every generation go against uh, his or her own religious tradition in many cases, uh, whatever they are? Uh, don't many of us have problems with our family because of our faith, problems with society? Aren't these same types of accusations made over and over again every generation? In Mark chapter 3, verse 35, he says, answering them, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And of course, this passage speaks to all those who have faced criticism or ridicule or resentment or anger or division because of their faith, because their faith is making them act and talk in a way that that makes them go against the grain of society, against the grain of perhaps their unbelieving family and so on and so forth. So I find this very, very encouraging. All right, so we move on now to chapter four Um, where Jesus is going to switch gears, going to be talking through parables. So the miracles and the teachings that provoke a series of confrontations are over. And Jesus now shifts His style of teaching in order to avoid these, avoid the confrontation. He's got work to do. He can't spend all his time debating with uh, with those who are confronting Him. So He continues to teach, but now He's going to do it in parable form. So only His disciples and apostles will discern and not His enemies, nor unbelievers. So let's read uh, chapter 4 here, uh, 11 and 12. It says, and He was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So this chapter, therefore, uh, contains a series of teachings, but now in parable form. So I just want to show you the flow of action, right? He's introduced, He does miracles, He does dynamic teachings, you know, so on and so forth, declares who He is, so on and so forth, and then confrontations. We've noted seven of them with different people in that society. Now in chapter four, we see Jesus again going back to teaching, but now in a a different format, so that He will uh, avoid the confrontations that have uh, plagued Him to this uh, part. So let's talk about parables very, very briefly. The word parable means to lay lay beside or to compare. You You have something over here and you take something and you lay it next to it to be able to compare one thing Um, uh, to another. Uh, It's putting uh, uh, two things side by side in order to draw a lesson or an understanding. So what Jesus does is He tells stories and so on and so forth and He puts physical examples down in order to allow His listeners to understand spiritual examples. So He uses stories that describe relationships and so on and so forth that you can see and understand in order to explain how things work in the world that they cannot see in the kingdom, in the spiritual kingdom. Okay? That's, the, that's why I used parables. So in order to be of value, the hearer had to understand the analogy. In most parables, um, Jesus was using everyday physical and human situations to explain the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom is like, you know, many times he'd say that. Uh, uh, so it was his way of uh, teaching what the kingdom was, or who was in the kingdom, or how did the kingdom of heaven, you know, how did it operate, and how uh, one how does one function within the kingdom? Okay? So the kingdom was the sum of God and his people. And it existed in heaven and for a time on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth for a time. Jesus was calling people to join Him in the kingdom. And this He did by preaching the gospel. Jesus also explained the nature of the kingdom and the lifestyle of those within the kingdom. And this He did using parables. So when we put all the parables together, we see that, first of all, the kingdom on earth is the church. All those who have obeyed the gospel and follow Christ faithfully in this fallen world of temptation, unbelief, sin and death, all the people that come out of that into the church have actually come out of the darkness into the light, have come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, kingdom of heaven, all different ways of describing the kingdom. Okay? And here on earth the kingdom is the church, obviously not the building, but the people of God who do His will in the name of Christ. Also, the kingdom in heaven, as John describes it in the book of Revelation, is the circle of God and His angels and the church living in a new heaven without sin, without sorrow, without death, separated from sinners and unbelievers. That'll be the kingdom of God in heaven. For a time that kingdom exists here on earth for a time. So through His parables, Jesus explained these things to disciples who were living in one, the kingdom of heaven on earth, and hoping to go to the other, the kingdom of heaven in heaven. So in chapter four, He gives four parables that help describe this kingdom. So we begin with the parable of the sower and the seed, very familiar. I'm not going to read verses one to twenty. We know what it is. The sower goes out to sow seed, and some falls on you know, on the road, and some falls on uh, ground that is uh, you know uh, full of weeds and, and you know uh, rocky soil, then weeds, and then on good earth, you know, so on and so forth. We know we know that we know that parable. Uh, The idea is that um, the parable describes how a person will or will not develop in the kingdom. And he gives both the parable and its explanation because it's it's a very basic one to others. So entry and growth into the kingdom is based on how well you react to God's word. That's one of the basic lessons. Those who do not enter or do not do well are those who, first of all, have a hard heart or don't hear uh, the the word at all. They have a sinful life. They're disbelieving. He compares them to like a road, the hard, rocky road there. The the seed don't penetrate. They're washed away. The birds come and they they eat. them. Um, The people who don't do well also are people who have no conviction. They don't persevere in the word. So that's the rocky soil, a little thin layer of soil. The seed penetrates a little bit. It goes down. The plant comes up a bit. The minute the sun shines, it dries out, right? They have no conviction. So those people, they don't do well either. And then he talks about people who have way too much involvement in the world and they forget or they ignore the word of God. So that's the soil. You know, that's, uh, you've got a lot of weeds in it and so on and so forth. And the seed goes down and it comes up and it's growing, but there's so many other plants there that eventually they choke that plant. Right? That's the analogy that he makes. And he's saying that people who are so worldly, so busy in the world, so on and so forth, they just don't have time for the word. They don't have time for spiritual things. You know, they're not, quote, bad people. They just don't have time. They're too busy chasing the buck or too busy building their thing or whatever it is. They ignore the word. And he says eventually it just chokes the word and it it has no fruit. It eventually dies. Now he says there are others who enter and are successful in the kingdom and those are the ones who hear the word and they respond properly to the word. They understand, they believe, they respond in obedience to the word. That's the the good earth. Planted down deep, it grows, it's watered, so on and so forth. So to the degree that they respond in faith and obedience, he says about this fourth kind of seed there, these people are productive at various rates, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, based on the level of obedience and, and, and experience. So we have Christians that are fruitful, at, at, a, at a 30-fold level, some Christians are faithful and, and productive at a 60-fold, others you know, 100-fold. Just like in other parables, you know, one talent, two talent, five talents. You know. We have Christians, depending on their, uh, their understanding, their obedience, their commitment, so on and so forth, they produce fruit at different rates. It doesn't mean that the 30-fold is rejected. It just means that you're producing at a different, at a different rate. All right, So there's the sower and the seed, uh, a parable describing how one enters into the kingdom and how one grows in the kingdom and what limits growth in the kingdom. All right, So then he has another parable and this is the parable of the lamp. It's not very long so we'll read this one. It says, and he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstead? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. So here Jesus picks up from the idea of fruitfulness, but He changes the figure to make another point. Before, in the parable of the sower and the seed, obedience equaled fruitfulness. If you're obedient, faithful, that's what uh, that had bearing on, on, on how much fruitfulness that you had as a Christian. In in this particular parable, uh, fruitfulness is equal to a witness, a lamp, something can be seen. So he switches the imagery to lamps in order to explain that your fruitfulness in the kingdom will produce the light that is necessary to light up a dark place. So the kingdom is a kingdom of light and your fruitfulness is what produces that light. So in the parable of the, the, the sower and the seed, your fruitfulness is 30, 60, 100. You know. In the parable of the lamp, you know, the brightness of the lamp is how fruitful you are. You know, you know, if you're uh, 30-fold, you know, you're, you're a 25-watt bulb. You know, 60-fold, you know, you're a 75-watt bulb. You're 100-fold, you're a 200-watt light bulb. You, you, that, you know, making a little comparison there. So your light has a purpose and its purpose is to give off light which is the purpose of a lamp in the first place. You know, he says, you don't, have a, you don't light a lamp and then stick it underneath the bed, do you? You don't do that. You don't light it to hide it. You don't produce light for no reason. Therefore the light of the kingdom is the fruitfulness of its members and that light draws men to the kingdom. It helps men, you know, men and women, it helps them find the kingdom and enter into the kingdom. In verse 22, Jesus warns that nothing remains a secret forever. All you do, whether it's good or bad, will come out. It'll come out now or later at judgment. And of course, the light uh, of the gospel, the light of their deeds provides the light now. But when Jesus comes, He will search search each of us with the light of truth. All right, a little uh, commentary by Jesus on this particular... Um, um, parable. It says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And He was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he he has shall be taken away from him. So between the parables, Jesus issues a, a warning to those who are listening to Him. If you hear, if you perceive, if you understand, then to the degree that you obey, you will be rewarded. If you respond with sincere obedience and and submit patiently to the word, you're going to be one of the ones that produce that 30, 60, 100. You're one of those people who are going to give off light. If you hear and understand and perceive but reject it or don't act on it, you'll, you'll lose whatever understanding or perception you once had. So the less you have as a base of understanding, the less, therefore, you will be able to receive. Think of it as a bucket. If you have a... You know, how much water? Which, which, which one would you rather have? You know, on a hot, you know, hot 105 degree day, you're outside mowing the lawn, so on and so forth, you've been out there a couple of hours, you come back in. Do you want a thimble full of water? You know? Or do you want a you know, 15 to a 20 ounce glass? Of what, which do you, you know, the container matters. And Jesus says, the smaller your container, the smaller you receive. And if you don't receive anything, eventually your container won't be big enough to carry anything. All right. So understanding, as I say, is like a bucket. If you don't fill it up and use it, God just replaces it with a smaller and smaller bucket until you can contain very little or nothing at all. Alright, we move on to the third parable. The parable of normal growth, verse 26 to 29, again not a very long one, we can read it. It says, and he was saying the kingdom of God, see what I'm saying, is like, so he's talking about the kingdom of God here, is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain and the head. But when the crop permits, He immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So the previous parable was about the different kinds of soils. This parable is about the seed itself and how it is grown and how it is sown. Jesus simply explains that once the seed is sown, man has no power over its growth. The growth is done apart from man's effort. Man harvests the result of the seed's growth. The, um, the, the sun, the rain, the weeding, so on and so forth, helps the growth, but the life is, is actually in the seed. So the parallel here is that the, the Word of God is the seed, and once it is planted by faith in one's heart and watered by perseverance, it grows within man to produce fruit in man's heart. So the seed, or the Word, has the life that produces the fruit. Man harvests it. He exhibits it. He uses it. He does not produce it through self-will or through self-exercise. And then the fourth parable is the parable of the mustard seed. Again, a very short one. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom? Again, he, he, he prefaces his parable by saying, I'm going to tell you what the kingdom is like. So he says, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So Jesus explained the good soil, believing heart, and the power of the seed, it produces the fruit, not man, now he explains the potential of the seed that He plants, that God plants. In comparison to the plant, it produces, uh, excuse me, in comparison to the plant it produces, the seed of the plant is tiny, but the plant itself, when it grows, is large and it is useful. So, so the, the analogy here is, the word of God may seem small. Our reading, Uh, and our small efforts at complying with it may seem humble at times. But look at the results throughout history as this seed has produced a kingdom that has surpassed all others and is still still going strong throughout the world. Now in verse 33 and 34 he gives a, a summary. He says, or Mark does, he says, with many such parables he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And He did not speak to them without a parable, but He was explaining everything privately to His own disciples. So once again, Mark repeats why the teaching has taken this form for now. Jesus is specifically talking to His disciples, to believers. Those who disbelieved, those who were searching for an opening to attack, could hear what He was saying, but they couldn't understand, so they were neutralized. So His public speaking in parables, in private, The disciples would want to know, well, what does this mean and what does that mean? In private, He would explain the details. So through the parables, Jesus explains that the the kingdom of God here on earth, the church, first of all, begins with the preaching of the word, the seed. Um, It's established through belief and obedience to the word. It grows according to the word as men persevere in it. And the kingdom has tremendous potential, more than they can even imagine. Do you think the apostles could even imagine how big, how powerful uh, the effects of Christianity would be throughout, throughout history? Do you think they could imagine that? And so the news of a growing kingdom given in parables to sift out unbelievers and also not to raise suspicion of religious leaders who would not appreciate this talk of a growing kingdom you know because it threatened their kingdom you know <laughs> so no wonder jesus is talking in parables i don't think uh, n- neither the roman rulers nor the religious uh, the jewish religious leaders w- would uh, would take very kindly to someone drawing very large crowds talking about a coming kingdom that is going to grow and be bigger than the existing kingdoms. They they weren't going to like that very much. So he continues speaking in parables. Okay, so we're going to stop right here. Next time Mark is going to describe more reactions to Jesus' ministry, this time from other sources. So I always encourage you, read ahead, read ahead. I don't always have time to read all of the texts, so it's uh, uh, very good if you're familiar with with at least the material that we're covering. All right, thanks for your attention. We'll see you next time.